You're listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I am a part of Generation X. Uh, Thank you. Yes, I don't mention it a lot. None of us really do. Uh, We're sandwiched between two generations that are quite a bit louder. And uh, we're fine with it. But I bring it up now because if you were to ask someone from my generation, who is the Incredible Hulk? We would not say Mark Ruffalo, nor would we say Edward Norton or Eric Bana. For us, we would say it's Lou Ferrigno. Because when we grew up, one of the most popular TV shows on television was the Incredible Hulk. And before the days of CGI, Hulk was embodied by the man Lou Ferrigno. And yet here's the interesting thing. He almost wasn't the Hulk. Now, when they decided to do this movie, they're like, we need someone who physically looks impressive. There's no CGI. And yet they decided, as they were casting the role, we need to find somebody that's maybe a seasoned actor. So they were going to go with Richard Keel, uh, who has become famous for playing Jaws on the movie, uh, the James Bond movies. And he's a tall guy, but he wasn't particularly muscular. And so famously, the story goes, the director brought his little boy to work one day. And on that day when they were casting, he pointed out Richard Keel and said to his son, hey, that's going to be the Hulk. And his little boy looked at the guy in makeup, looked more like Frankenstein than the Hulk. And he was like, that's not the Hulk. And then he looked over at Lou Ferrigno, who at the time was training to be Mr. Olympia. And the kid said, that's the Hulk. And they were shooting a scene that day where the Hulk was supposed to flip a car, but the metal cables broke that were going to flip the car. And so Lou Ferrigno decided, well, then I'll just do it. And when he went over and picked up the car and flipped it, everyone else on set went, the kid's right. That's the Hulk. We found him. We found him, everybody. That's the true Hulk. Now, why do I bring that up? Because we're in an iconic moment in the ministry of Jesus right now. We're in the miracle of feeding the multitudes. This is a famous moment. Even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard of it. And it's a monumental moment. It's the only miracle that all four Gospels record. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell this story because this was a major moment in the ministry of Jesus. And yet anybody goes, well, why is it a bigger deal than some of these other miracles? What's going on here? And if you're saying that, you might miss the significance of what's happening here that this miraculous moment was a declaration. It was him declaring to the people in no uncertain terms, there's a true king, and it's not the one you think it is. It's interesting, one commentator says, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most familiar stories of the Bible, immortalized in children's Bibles and storybooks as the pastoral miracle of Jesus surrounded by children and happy families. But that picture is a misleading stereotype of what happened on that Galilean hill country. Namely, this was the makings of a revolutionary uprising. And if you don't see it that way, it's because you might be missing the message in the method. And that can happen across cultures. I mean, for us, uh, if I stood up here and said, hey, so uh, he took her out to a nice dinner, and then they went on a walk around the monuments at night, and then when they got to the steps of the Lincoln, he hit a knee and pulled out a little box and held up a ring. She started to cry, and they hugged each other and went to a reception with their families. Most of you in this room would know what I'm talking about. You go, oh, man, he was declaring to her his love, that he wanted to be her husband. He was declaring, I want a covenant of marriage. But if you're from some other culture, while everyone's oh and crying, you're going, huh? 
guy crouched down and asked her to hold some jewelry. And you would miss the significance in the symbols. You see that? And what Jesus here is declaring is, I'm the real king. And you might miss it in the moment, but I want to look at it together. And we're going to see the proclamation of the king. And we're going to see the people of the king and then the priorities of the king. And so to set it up, it happens in verse 30 through 34. You get a setup for this miraculous moment. It says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. Now, return from where? Well, you remember we read at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus had sent them out as official emissaries of the king. That's what the word apostle means. I'm the sent one with the message and the authority of the commissioner. And so he sent them out to let people know the kingdom of God is at hand. And he had been building to this. In chapter one, we saw it. He gathered some guys and said, follow me. I just want you to be near me and I'll make you fishers of men. In chapter two, they watched him fish for Levi. Got the tax collector in their group. In in chapter three, four, and five, they get to hear his words and watch his miracles. They get to see what he does and what he says. And then now as we get to six, he sends them out. Do what I'm doing. This is good leadership. I do, you watch. I do, you help. Then you do, and I help. He's training them to be a part of his mission. And so they return after they go out to proclaim the kingdom to let him know how it went. And in verse 31, he says to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. He says, let's go out to the wilderness. Why? Because it's not crowded out there. And get away from all the hectic of the city and go to a quiet place. And it says, for many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. That Jesus's ministry at this point is blowing up. People are coming from everywhere because he's healing, casting out demons. It's pretty miraculous. And so they're getting crowded. So he says, let's go to a desolate place and rest. It's fascinating that Jesus has this rhythm of moving into the intensity of the city and then retreating to the wilderness for recovery. And Jesus did that in his ministry. And now these guys that track with Jesus do the same thing. Go into the intensity of the city and then out into the wild places for recovery. Incidentally, that's a great piece of advice for the people that know and love and follow Jesus now. You go into the intensity of ministry and then you need to get out at least to Rock Creek Park, maybe Great Falls, I don't know, somewhere else to go recover because this town will eat your life, right? There's a ministry of intensity and recovery, a rhythm, and now Jesus' followers are doing the same, right? And yet even with the crush of the crowd and all its demands, Jesus prioritizes, but your number one priority is to be alone with me. It's a whole other sermon we don't have time for because verse 32, they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves, but then they're not alone for long. Verse 33 says, now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Notice the triple them. Before it was just Jesus, but now people are starting to recognize those are Jesus's people. They're rolling with him. They're associated with him. They're part of the work. They are in a movement together, which again is a whole other sermon we won't do, but that's the best thing a pastor can hope for in a church that uh, the pronouns change to we. That when you hear someone say like, y'all are doing a good work here. I see y'all planted a church. Oh, I see passion planted a church. But when you start saying like, hey, we're doing something good in the city. Hey, we're a part of what's going on in on, uh, U Street. Hey, we've moved to the Lincoln Theater. When you hear people shift to saying, I'm a part of this, that's the greatest hope for a pastor is that you understand we're a part of a ministry together. It's not my church, it's Jesus's church, but he's inviting us to be a part of it together. And here, people are starting to recognize those are his people. They're rolling with him. And yet they're not really coming for the disciples. They're coming for Jesus uh, because he has what they need. And here's the fascinating thing about his heartbeat in verse 34. It says, he went ashore and he saw the great crowd. Now let me stop before we move on. Why was he out there? He's trying to get away from the crowds, right? He's getting crushed. They're taking photos, asking for autographs. It's bananas, right? And so what does he do? 
He gets into the boat, right? And they, they whisk off to try to get away from the crowd to get a quiet moment with the boys, right? But people see him on the boat and they're like, they're going that way. And they start running around the lake and they're there when they get there. How do you feel? You're trying to have a quiet day and the sirens are going off, the kids are yelling, roommates are texting, your boss is asking you to send files even though it's a Saturday. How do you feel when you see the great crowd? When he saw them, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. It's interesting. When he sees them, he's not mad. Actually, he is the opposite. It says he had compassion with them. Uh, Co-passion. That means I hurt with your hurt. Sympathos, the same pain that you have. Uh, In Greek, this is the word splagnitsomai, which means lower intestine. You can tell doesn't impress most of you. It's a metaphor for a deep emotional feeling. We still do this, right? Uh, You broke my heart. I have a gut feeling about that. He had a visceral reaction. We still use this kind of language. Back then they would talk about that, that in my deepest viscera, at the deepest parts of me, I react to your pain. That it's not just that Jesus is doing ministry because he's supposed to or whatever. It's when he sees you, when he sees the crowds, he has a deep gut level emotional response of co-passion. I hurt where you hurt. I care about what you care about because I care about you. What is drawing out this compassion in Jesus? He says, because they're sheep, not warriors, not leaders, not fighters. He says, I see sheep, defenseless animals. And here's the problem. They got no shepherd. That's his concern. I see sheep along the hills and they got no shepherd. So he begins to teach them many things. Now, let me stop here because some of you may hear that and you go, Ben, I'm not hearing the revolution. I'm not hearing him making a command to be a king. I mean, all the imagery here is about sheep on a hillside and he's about to feed them lunch. So what are you talking about this revolutionary declaration of being a king? Well, here's the interesting thing. Again, culturally, contextually, this idea of being a shepherd of the sheep shows up all through the Old Testament, primarily as a metaphor for leadership. Moses was a shepherd of his people. David was the shepherd of his people. Joshua was the shepherd of his people into war. And in Numbers, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Nahum, Zechariah, all through the Bible, the political leader of the nation was called a shepherd of the people. And when Jesus looks at them, he says, these people, they lack leadership. There's no shepherd. What he's saying is, what I'm about to do is the opposite of King Herod. So now you understand why the Herod moment came up. I don't know if you caught this, and sometimes when you just teach little moments at a time, you can miss what Mark just did that was significant. Did you notice in this chapter what happens? He has the sending out of the apostles. Go and send them out. And then you skip several verses, and later they come back, and he tells them how it goes. And sandwiched in the middle, Mark cuts the camera to a throne room where they're having a discussion about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And uh, they're having a discussion about Jesus. Who is Jesus? And some of them say, maybe he's John the Baptist come back from the dead because John the Baptist didn't do any miracles and they're spooked by Jesus's miracles and they're like, maybe he's John resurrected. And some of them are like, no, no, no. He's probably another prophet like Elijah. And the king's like, he's John the Baptist who I beheaded. Which you just realized, oh man, that dude cut John the Baptist's head off. And then what happens? 
an extended flashback. So it's not happening in that moment. Mark takes us backwards. So right in the middle of the sending out and the receiving of the apostles, you get this story about Herod. Why? Because it's showing you the shepherd of the people. Who is their king? King Herod, which the irony is, we don't have time to go into all this. We did some of it in the extra cast, that it's called King Herod in the text, but most commentators think Mark is being ironic there because this Herod was never named king. His daddy was named king. His daddy was called Herod the Great. And he got in good with the Romans. And when they took over this region, they dubbed him as the regional leader and named him king of the Jews, even though he wasn't uh, entirely from the Jewish line. And so he always had a bit of resistance within the Jewish community. And that's why he felt so threatened when the Magi came from the East and said, we're looking for the one who was born king of the Jews. And he hears it as a threat. You think there's some other king than me? And that's why you see Herod the Great in Matthew chapter two, slaughtering the innocent kids under the age of two. He was a paranoid man, killed his own kids because he thought they were rivals to his throne. And yet, when he was about to die, Herod Antipas thought he was gonna get the whole kingdom from his dad. And that's what he wanted, power right? and money. I know that's hard to imagine. Try to picture somebody that says, here's my time to take over. And five days before he died, Herod the Great changed his will and said, I'm not giving the kingship to anybody. I'm carving it up among my kids. And Herod Antipas never got to be named king. And yet he ruled in Galilee. And here we see King Herod ruling in Galilee, and suddenly he brings all his officials around, and then it starts talking about when he beheaded John. He was at a party. He threw a big party for himself, and at that party, who did he invite? All my political leaders, all my military leaders, and all the wealthy landowners, the who's who, because I want to be king, and I'm going to marshal around me my cabinet. I'm the one ruling, and I'm going to get the important people around me. And yet it tells you as he does that, there's a tension in the moment because John the Baptist had ministered in his environment and John the Baptist had told him, hey, what you were doing, the fact that you took your brother's wife, had her divorce uh, your brother, and then you married her, that violates God's rules for marriage. And John the Baptist wasn't afraid to call out anybody. And it said Herod was perplexed by that because one, he wanted not just money and power, he wanted money, sex, and power. And as a king, he could get it. If I get power, I use it for me. And yet he understands John is a holy and a righteous man. And it says he was perplexed because he's, he's convicting Herod, but then Herod hears him gladly. That's a great sermon. I mean, he's preaching it at me and telling me I'm wrong, but man, he's good. And he's conflicted. And so this conflict comes to a head. He throws a party to consolidate his power. And his wife, who hates John the Baptist, sees an opportunity to bring his two greatest priorities clashing to one another. So he has his uh, stepdaughter, his brother's kid, come and dance for them, which is as icky as it sounds. You know, don't think talent show, right? Um, and uh, then he shows off for his friends. Anything you want, I'll give it. Up to half my kingdom, <laughs> right? And so she asks mom, what should I get him? And she says the head of, Herod, of John the Baptist. And here you see this ruler politically have his two priorities put next to each other. What am I going to pursue? This man is holy. He's righteous. He's preaching the things of God. But I want to look good in front of the people who can give me power and influence and money. Which is he going to decide? Is he going to go with holiness? Or is he going to go with self-indulgence? And what does the passage say? Immediately, he calls for the head of John the Baptist. Can you imagine Someone is given political power and influence, and they use it not to serve people, but exploit people for their own power and indulgence. 
It happened here. And what you see in that moment is, this guy's king, he rules Galilee, but he doesn't care about these people. He's not using his power to serve them. He's using their power to exploit them. And then what happens? Right back to Jesus. And he's not in a palace. He's out in the wilderness. And it's not the important people around him. Who is it? The disenfranchised who ran around the lake to find him. And what does he do? He looks at them and says, this is a leaderless people. And he doesn't despise them and he doesn't use them. He's going to serve them. And in doing so, he's stepping forward and saying, hey, that guy may have gotten the role of king, but there's a true king, and it's not Herod. Interestingly, the language Jesus uses there, it's an indictment from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34. Listen to this from the prophet Ezekiel, centuries before. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should you not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened, the sick you've not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you've not brought back, the lost you've not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they're scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. And it goes on like this for a while. But then God sees enough of this And the prophet begins to speak in verse 11 of the same chapter. It says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the strayed. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. He says, when all the structures you put your hope in fail, God himself said, but I will come and I will shepherd you. And then he says, I'll send David. Now this was after King David in the Old Testament was long dead. This is talking about the promise made to David that one from your lineage will come to rule his people. He's talking about the Messiah. When you've been failed by what the world has to offer, I'm sending the true king and he will shepherd you. And Jesus in this moment looks around and says, there's no shepherd here except me. I am the shepherd. Watch me work and watch me use my power, the opposite of Herod, not in a palace in the wilderness, not just an invitation to important people, but an invitation to anybody with a need, not indulgence. He'll forego eating, not taking from people, but he gives to them freely. Herod's banquet ends in death. Jesus will give them the bread of life. This guy presumed to be king, but the children see that's the real king. That's the real king. He's the true shepherd of his people. What's fascinating is the crowd gets this. And John, if you've ever read the Gospel of John, he's like the deleted scenes, behind the scenes uh, uh, gospel. He probably wrote it last, and he's filling in things the other Gospels didn't cover. He says, hey, the people there knew what was going on. So when John tells the story in John 6, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, indeed, the prophet who is to come is into the world. Moses told them, look for a prophet like me who shepherds his people. And they say, he's here. And perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again by the mountains by himself. So Herod calls himself king, but he does not care about the people. 
Jesus performs this miracle and they go, this is the new Moses. This is the one we've been waiting for. And they're about to by force make him king. And Jesus was like, we got to get out of here. He said, I'm not a king like Herod, but I'm not a revolutionary like you're looking for either. This is a different kind of kingdom I'm building. I'm not here to overthrow a government. I'm not a rage-fueled revolutionary, although he got angry at injustice. He says, my revolution will not be weapons of death. It will be the bread of life. I'm not looking to take over the government. I'm looking to change the world. So Jesus' revolution is a revolution of compassion. The true king has come, not to destroy, but to restore. This is the true shepherd king. Do you see it? This is what we're meant to be a part of. Napoleon Bonaparte saw it. Uh, It's interesting. John Abbott, who wrote a history of Napoleon Bonaparte, records a conversation he had when he was in exile with one of his generals. And Napoleon said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Jesus has a revolution of compassion. I'm the true king, greater than all kings. I'm the king over all kings, but I'm not coming to rule and dominate by force. I have power in service of my love. That's King Jesus. That's what he's like. Do you see it? That's the revolution he's bringing. And let me tell you something. That's the revolution we need. Desperately in our community, in our city, in our world, this is what we need. God changing people by ruling us with love that that kind of love would rule in us. Uh, Some of you know that um, the Stewart family, we have had a weird week. One day in particular, uh, I woke up, was getting ready to study this passage, and uh, got a phone call from my wife, and uh, she said, hey, Ben, I'm on the side of the road on the GW Parkway. I've just been hit by a car. So I rush out there to see how she's doing, and uh, she's okay. And uh, we end up spending the day in the hospital to make sure, but, but she's okay. The car's totaled, uh, which was a renter. Sorry, guys, but uh, she's fine. Uh, we get home, and then uh, my son Owen takes a tumble, slips, bangs his knee open, back to the hospital, get him stitched up. Then I get back, and I'm like, okay, is everyone done? And then I see the red lights filling up my house because an ambulance is pulling up in front of my house. Same ambulance driver from when Donna got uh, hit. Uh, and he was there. Uh, not for any stewards, but uh, for our neighbor. And uh, Donna's fine, Owen's fine, neighbor was not fine. And uh, she was in her 90s, uh, but passed away uh, this week. And so it was an interesting day. I just kept thinking about, man, last week I talked about how we're more vulnerable than we know it. And I'm like, man, here we are uh, at the intersection of vulnerability of life and death, all this. But I mentioned that because when I went out there to check on Donna, my first concern is, is she Okay. You know, and then I get up there and realize she had stopped because of some traffic, and the guy behind her had rear-ended her and crushed her car. But when I got there, I'm piecing together what's going on. By the grace of God, it happened right by Teddy Roosevelt Island, and uh, there was a fire captain about to go on a run, who watched the whole wreck, jumped over the dividing wall, ran over, and started making all the calls to make sure everyone was going to be taken care of. Just the right person, the right time to step in there and be a hero. And as soon as he made the call, got 911, everybody coming, he ran up to the window and asked Donna, are you okay? And my wife, in a moment of shock, looked at him and said, do you know Jesus? (laughs) And he was like, yes, ma'am, I do. And she's like, good, I love him. And uh, so they had a moment, they talked about Jesus, got out of the car, he's checking on the other guy. When I pull up, the ambulance people are talking to her. 
about Jesus and are writing down the name of our church. I start uh, taking videos of the vehicle for insurance purposes. So I'm like, notice the back of our car is crushed, front of the car is not crushed, front of his car is very crushed. You know, and I'm just taking videos. Unbeknownst to me, until later, I capture a moment. And when I went and looked at later, I got the front of his car that's crushed, and I got him right as he's receiving a hug from my wife. Because he was scared he was going to die, then he didn't die, then he was scared he was going to hurt somebody else, and he was distraught over that. And when he said that, my wife said to him, do you know Jesus? And he said, yes, I know Jesus. And she said, good. Well, I forgive you. And she gave him a big hug. And the police officer, who's new to the area, was standing there, and she went, well, that went about as good as I can imagine that going. <laughs> and then we left. And I drove away, and I was like, my wife, when she gets hit, she wants to know, bystander, do you know Jesus? EMTs, do you know Jesus? Guy who hit me, do you know Jesus? And I'm like, wow, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. I'm not certain what would have come out of mine. <laughs> Just trying to be honest with you. But it was wild how many people commented later, and even at the scene commented, man, do we need more of that? That how easy it would have been in that moment to be put out, agitated, angry, frustrated. But what comes out in the middle of difficulty, danger, hostility, stress, what comes out of the people of Jesus? Compassion, love. That'll change the world. That'll ease guilt. That will change human interaction. And I'm not just being a weird, sentimental person. I'm telling you, hey, the world is filled with stress and anger and fear, and so many of you feel it on the streets. And what we need is a compassion revolution. And that's what Jesus brings. And in the midst of this difficult day, you see he's going to move towards people with co-passion, and it's going to change the world, unlike any other emperor was capable of. But notice he doesn't want to do it alone. And so we don't just get the proclamation, I'm the king, I'm the shepherd you lack. That's what Jesus says. I'm not a self-help coach, I'm your king. Do you see me? But then we see the king's people. He wants to use us to be a part of his work. And he uses his apostles, he's bringing them in. And you see it in verse 35, it says, when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour's now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So these guys have a newfound authority from Jesus and they're starting to pick up their requisite responsibility. It's very responsible. If you have employees, you want them to have that sense of agency. Uh, before they were just watching the whole thing and now they're like, hey, Jesus, we noticed it's getting late and this place is desolate. That's been mentioned three times already in the text. We're all aware of that. Hey, Jesus, there's not a food out here because there's no towns. And then they propose a solution. Good for them. Identify problems, propose solutions, right? They go, Jesus, we should send them out of here. Let the villages feed them. One commentator says they see a problem and they offer an imminently reasonable solution. Send them to the villages and let them feed them. Jesus foregoes reasonable and makes this weird. He says in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Rather than relieving the crisis, he intensifies it. Jesus is a throng of people. There's thousands of people, 5,000 men. You're not adding women, children, families. I mean, there's multitudes more than that, all right? Jesus, someone's got to feed him. Send him to the villages. He's like, nah, 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 you guys do it. And notice they don't go, yes, Lord, we shall. Teach us how. They don't do that. What do they do? Not only do they say, we can't do that. 
they're, they're snide in their tone. They say, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You told us to travel without a money bag. Oh, should we just grab that year's annual wage and buy them bread from the store next to the nothing? I mean, they're just like, this is dumb. What you're asking for is beyond our capacities. Interestingly, they sound like Moses. Uh, when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness and they're crying for food, Moses says to God, did I give birth to them? Did I conceive these people that I'm supposed to feed them? This burden's too big for me. He's like, I can't feed all these people. So they sound like Moses. We need someone greater than Moses. Who can feed all these people? Right? And what I love about it is Jesus, knowing he's going to solve the problem he created, goes, oh, uh, how many loaves do you have? Just go see. And they got to go just look at what they have. And they come back and they say, five and two fish. Now, the point of that is God wants to use people as part of his work. But notice what kind of people. Inadequate people. I don't know if you know this, but five rolls is not enough for 15,000 people, okay? And these fish weren't breaking any records either, okay? These were small. Now, it's, it's interesting. The whole point in bringing this up is not to say, I, I remember once the first church I ever worked at, they did communion where people would come down the aisles and you would offer the elements to them. And uh, I was the bread person. So as people came back, I would say, the body of Christ was broken for you. That was my job. I'm like, all right, every new person, body of Christ is broken for you. Body of Christ is broken for you. And I remember this one guy came up, first time for me ever leading communion, first time being a minister. He walks up and he was like, you know, I always wondered about the feeding of the 5,000, but now I know they had plenty of bread. People just had to share it like you're doing now. Thank you. And he walked off and I was like, body of, wait, what? No, that's not at all what the text is saying. Why are you, no, sir, right? But it was too late. The next person was already getting the body of Christ. Luke's whole point here is to tell you they don't have enough. And some people look and go, well, everyone was hiding food. And when they saw the disciples share, they were like, well, here's my fish too, right? And they're like, it's a story about sharing. And you're like, no, it's not. Because then they pick up all these baskets later. The whole point is to say this was not normal. What's the point? His point was to use inadequate people. Jesus is creating a moment where everything depends on him. Do you see that? How many loaves do you have? We don't have any. Yeah. I want to lead you to a place beyond your capacity. It's funny for me. You hear people say that. God will never put you in situations you can't handle. And I'm like, what? <laughs> yes, he will. All the time. <laughs> on purpose. He will take you far beyond your capacities because he wants people to see the supernatural working in a natural life. He doesn't just want to see a talented person, a resourceful woman. He wants to see the power of God through an inadequate people. That's the point. And so he lets them live in it. We got five rolls. Like, okay, all right. And verse 39, he commands them to sit down in groups on the green grass. Uh, we don't have time to go into that whole green grass comment, but it's a hat tip to Psalm 23. When the Lord's my shepherd, he makes me lie down in green pastures and he restores my soul. That's what's about to happen. So they sat down in groups by 150s. That's another Easter egg. Mark's is hiding them everywhere. When Moses was organizing the people, shepherding them through the wilderness, he said he had to organize them into hundreds and fifties. And Mark grabs that language because Jesus is showing you, I'm the new Moses. I'm the new shepherd. That's what this is. I'm the one here to lead you. 
And yet I'm far beyond what Moses had the capacity to do. In verse 41, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people and he divided the two fish among them all. He, he, he does proper etiquette that a host would do at a meal at their house. You stand up, break the bread, pass it around, say a blessing. He's like, you're welcome in my house. People who are here because of their need, not their importance. You're welcome here to be fed by me. And they ate and they were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of the fish and those who ate the loaves were about 5,000 men. I said before, we need a revolution of compassion. And you go, Ben, that's just not realistic. You know, of course it's not. Not by your power. Not by our collective power. At the best will be a well-organized group. There's a lot of those. You need supernatural power for a revolution of compassion. Supernatural provision for a revolution of compassion. And that's Jesus's point. That's why he does this. That's why he keeps talking in the dusk, lets them feel the anxiety. We can't do it. He's like, I know you can't, but watch me, what I can do when you trust me. Let me tell you something. My hope for our church is that this would be a place that no one can add it up and equal what we are. Well, you got a good band, you got some organized teams, and you got a nice venue. Yeah, okay. All right, one plus one plus one equals three. I want them to walk in here and go, you and you are seeing all these people come. I came and watched the show. It wasn't that good. Why are so many people's lives changing? And I want them to go, either there's mass hysteria or maybe what they're saying matters that God is on the move and God can change hearts and God can do things. This is a supernatural movement. That's what I'm praying for. That's what we're asking God for, that he can do things here that we think are impossible. I remember for me, just full confession, well, I would go to my dad's, you know, like, like many kids, uh, two weekends a month, you know, uh, would go visit dad and hang out with him. And uh, I remember as a kid, I felt like Jesus stopped at the borders of Beeville, Texas. And it just wasn't a spiritually vibrant place. And so I just felt like I was always misunderstood in that space. And I never said it, because you wouldn't say that like on a theological quiz. Well, God can't move in uh, small towns in the South Texas. It's just, but you just go, but he's not. And I don't think anyone's heart's going to change. And so I'll tell you, it was the craziest thing. When years later, my dad said something to me, I never thought I would hear him say. He's like, Ben, will you go to this retreat with me? I was like, Okay. He's like, all my buddies have gone and they want to go. And it was a Christian retreat. And so my dad's friends were on a Christian retreat. Like those things don't go together. And then my dad is going to go. That makes no sense. My dad's inviting me to go. That makes no sense. And so I show up at this thing. And I remember it was the wildest thing. Like uh, they would sing songs and some of them were like even beautiful old gospel hymns, but done in a South Texas style. So I remember the first song, it was, this train is bound for glory, this train. And then a guy had a train whistle. He'd go, woo, woo, this train is bound for glory, this train, woo, woo. And I was like, oh no, I'm stuck here for a weekend. I remember the first speaker got up and he was like, walking with God is kind of like hunting for Mui Grande. And he put up a picture of a, a scope pointing at a big deer. And I was like, this is, this is a ride, man. I don't know what's going on. And I got to tell you what, it was not cool. 
But I got to tell you, there was one moment towards the end, I won't tell you all the details of it, where they were just talking about the extravagant grace of Jesus Christ. And there were some dudes there, there were some hard men there, guys who'd lived hard lives. And I watched them burst into tears, hug each other, repent, forgive. And I remember looking around and going, man, I just thought, God, even as a minister, I can't break into this town. I can't change the hearts of people. I don't even know if it's possible. And I think he wants to say, no, I've got a revolution of compassion coming, but yeah, it's going to require supernatural provision. What do you think we're doing here? And a couple months ago, just I think last year, I went back to Beville to, to do a reunion with my dad's friends. And I remember when we showed up there, one after another, these men started coming up to me and not just telling me they started going to church, not just telling me they found some religion, but telling me how Jesus had changed their life. Jesus had changed their marriage. Jesus had saved their kids. I remember one of them came up to me and he was like, Ben, you knew me. I should be dead. And I was like, that is true. Like, it's actually amazing that you're not The choices you were making. And he was just like, right? And then he's like, but God has changed my life. And I just remember thinking, and it still blows my mind sometimes, eh, God can change even Beville. How about that? Because, hey, the supernatural is possible when you're talking about the power of the king. And so I know for some of us, maybe there's a cynic in this place that you go, God can't change my office. God can't change my boss. God change, can't change DC. And I think you need to amend that to, no, you can't. And, and a church can't. But don't tell Jesus he can't. You just have to bring to him the sad thing you got. I've got a pack of Hawaiian rolls and some fish. All right, let's start there. That's how this church started. It's wild. I looked back at my notes from this. You know, when I taught this last, it was at a, a, an interest meeting we were doing before we launched this church. And I met a woman that night who's driving my kids here to church uh, today she's a dear friend. You know, just God can do what he wants in this town. I'm not worried about that. And, uh, and there's a revolution of compassion coming and he wants to use you and he wants to use me. But here's the end of it. The shepherd's priority, the king's priorities. And you see it. Why did he do this miracle this way? I love the way C.S. Lewis said it. He said, the miracle is in fact a retelling in small letters of the same story which is written across the whole world in large letters, too large for some of us to see. And then he contrasts Jesus' miracles with myths. He said, here's the difference. He said, the different lies in the fact that Jesus' miracles show an invasion by a power which is not alien. They are what would be expected to happen if nature is invaded, not simply by a God, but by the God of nature, by a power which is outside of nature's jurisdiction, not as a foreigner, but as a sovereign. They proclaim that he who has come is not merely a king, but the king, nature's king and ours. That's why Jesus' miracles weren't random. They were him taking nature as it is and saying, I'm the authority over it. Uh, nothing becomes bread every day, right? As seeds grow in the dirt. He says, but I'm just going to do it fast. So you see the God over nature is here. That this is our provider. This is God himself. And what's wild is at the end, he messes with his disciples again. He dismisses the crowd and he tells his guys, get in the boat, I'll meet you on the other side. And they're probably like, what, is he going to walk? Why is he not getting in the boat with us? And the truth is he is going to walk out onto the water. And when he does it, they all start freaking out. Did you see that? They thought he's a water demon. 
And he says, take heart, don't be afraid, it is I. And he gets in the boat. And what does it say? They are terrified and they are astonished. And then you notice why? It says, because they didn't understand the loaves. There's a callback to the bread moment. You go, what does that mean? If they understood his power in that moment and said, this is the God over nature, then why would I be afraid? Why would I be concerned? Why would I doubt that anything's possible? But then they get in the boat and a storm hits and they're terrified. And then they see a guy walking on the water and they're freaking out. They think they're going to die. And in that moment, for some of you, you're reading this, you're like, you silly disciples. He calmed the storm earlier. You should just believe he'd call him later. He just fed thousands of people. Why don't you have faith? But it's funny how that happens. Anxieties rise when past mercies are forgotten. And yet for many of us, how often are we the same? That man, we get in a moment where God's shown up for us. You put your faith in Jesus as a kid. Maybe you're the first person in your family to ever do it. He changed your heart from the inside out. Some of you were begging him to move in your friendship groups and God brought you a community that's that you couldn't imagine life without and couldn't imagine finding on your own. Some of you, God has made some things straight you always thought would be bent, healed some things you always thought would be broken. He has done miraculous things in your midst. And yet as soon as the finances go sideways, the right amount of hate comes through you online and suddenly fear takes over because your heart's hard because you forgot about the loaves. Now the God who's been faithful back then will be faithful now. The God who was faithful in these days is faithful now. It's the same God. And I tell you, for me, meeting all kinds of challenges this week and, and all the stuff we're running into, as I read this, I thought, Lord, I just don't want to meet uncertainty with anxiety. I want to meet it remembering your past mercies. I want to step into tomorrow with faith and not fear because I want to honor you that way. Because what you are telling me in those uncertain terms is who you are. You're the king not just over them back then, but over nature itself and over me. And look what kind of king he is, a compassionate king that wants to use me to be a part of his purposes. I want to be on board with something like that, that we've got a better Moses who will lead us through the wilderness to the promised land. We got a better Elijah. Elijah provided for his servants miraculously. He'll provide for us. We got a better David, the son of David, who will feed his people. We got a better shepherd who will let you lie down in green pastures and restore your soul. We got the Lord who rules the winds and the waves. And we have the one who didn't just bless, bless and break the bread in that day. Just a little while later, he will stand up to break bread again with his disciples. And he'll break it and say, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he says, this is a symbol of what I'm about to do on the cross. All the sin and pain and horrible things in the world and in you, I'm paying for. I'm paying the debt you incurred with your sin so that you can be healed and whole and made alive. I can be the redeemer of the world because I'm a sacrifice for the world. He's the king who's compassionate, not to rule over us, but to give everything for us so that we might be who he's called us to be. And I'm asking God for my life and my kids' lives and for your lives. Not just that you'd be a nice person with a little bit of religion, and certainly not that you would be a Herod in this town using the power God's given you. And some of you, God has given you great power, but to use it for your own indulgence. But rather to say, no, I've been given influence by the king, but guess what? There's a bigger kingdom. 
And it's one that's filled with compassion. That's not trying to use people, but trying to redeem people. It's a, it's a revolution of compassion. It's a supernatural provision. God, I want to be a part of your story for your glory and for the good of the city. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.